Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, Centered from Reality Podcast. I hope your Wednesday is going okay, or well, or great, depending how you're feeling. Um, I was cooking and catching up on the news, and oh my gosh, um, I was going to mainly talk about Pakistan and Iran, but then I was reading The Economist after dinner, and I saw that Chevron USA versus the NRDC, which is the Natural Re- uh, Resources Defense Council, the Supreme Court is finally hearing a 40-year-old precedent, which is Chevron, as, as I'm going to call it from now on in the podcast. And I've rallied about this, ranted about this, talked about this a myriad of different times on the podcast because this is basically the decision, Chevron deference, which I'm not going to get into the weeds on this right now, and I recommend going back. I have a few episodes on this. You can look through the history of the podcast to find it, but Basically, this gives deference to administrative agencies. And when I was in grad school, this was one of my big interests, was how basically this decision granted different federal agencies and just administrative agencies in general to have a lot of independence, administrative independence and deference. And so basically in 1984, (laughs) lovely year, um, the decision found that federal courts have to defer to a federal agency's own interpretation of sometimes an ambiguous or unclear statute that Congress delegated to the administrator or the agency involved. So it's been actually really important in federal agencies dictating public policy based on their own understanding. And I won't get into the weeds here, but this was an important decision because it's allowed basically administrative independence from federal courts. And so we are right now seeing SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, hear a case that might actually completely upend Chevron. And so the thing is, is that since 2015, the conservative side of the justice system has really kind of wanted to go after Chevron and make it so administrative agencies are not able to adjudicate these type of situations here. And of course, this is all now part of the MAGA deep state, we need to gut the federal government thing, it's all intertwined. And the Federalist Society, for example, where, you know, they have their lists that all the judges that end up in the Supreme Court on the right end up coming from. And so their big deal is to kind of get rid of Chevron. And let me get to why this is big right now. So there's a few cases under review, they're right now holding hearings about this. And so Basically, one of the cases under review is right now called the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act. And basically, The Economist writes here in quotes, the cases under review both involve fishermen objecting to a regulation requiring them to pay hefty fees for monitors who keep an eye on them as they troll for herring. The rule was issued in 2020 by the National Maritime Fisheries Service, an agency of the executive branch. It was then blessed by two circuit courts of appeal as a consonant with, the, with again, the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act, which was passed in 1976. And so basically the, the thing here is that right now, under the Chevron decision, because this is an executive agency that's put down this decision, deference would be left to this organization. And so we may see that can be completely overturned where the courts may say that the, the National Marine Fisheries Service actually doesn't have the ability to put out these forms of regulations. And this would completely upend 
kind of the administrative state. So if you're on the right, especially on more of the MAGA right, this is good news. But I, I argue that you don't want a really strong judicial system without also giving deference to different agencies, because I truly believe that bureaucrats inside of these agencies, their own adjudicators inside of these different agencies, understand the policy better. And you don't want to leave it up to just neutral courts sometimes when the actual agencies better understand the policies going forward and have people that are better trained to do so. And of course, this is actually not going to be decided until June, I'm assuming, based on what I've seen right now. But this could completely change how the country views different executive agencies and how they can basically adjudicate their own processes and also how Congress can pass different bills, different laws that are then put forth to these agencies and see how they interact with regulations, the regulatory state, etc. So this would be huge if it changes and it could really change the scope of the country in a lot of ways. And then also you could just have plaintiffs from around the country going after different regulations, different organizations, etc. And I, I think that could be pretty damn problematic going forward. So I don't have too much more to say on that right now, but Chevron has been in the crosshairs on the more Federalist Society American right. It's been definitely in their minds for quite some time. And unfortunately, if you look at the leaning of the courts right now, or not the courts, the Supreme Court right now, it seems to me quite likely that it will be overturned. And the ramifications of that, I don't even want to speculate on right now, but I don't think they would be great. And before we get into Iran and Pakistan and some recent attacks that, again, just show the tinderbox we're seeing, I do want to also give a shout out to Tina Wynn, who has a new book, The MAGA Diaries. I've been starting to listen to it, and she also has appeared on the Fifth Column podcast and The Bulwark. So I've heard her talk about the book a little bit, so I decided to start listening to it. So I'm getting into the book right now. She right now is is a writer for Puck News, but she also was kind of one of Tucker Carlson's prodigies. And I think like when you first hear the MAGA diaries, you think, oh God, is this going to be some new existential MAGA fantasy fiction or something? No, it's actually a really important piece that kind of opened my eyes to even me when I was in college back at Chapman in Orange County back in the days, a school that has a lot of, you know, conservative influence and kind of what happens to young college students. Now, she went to Claremont McKenna, and she focuses on the Claremont Institute, which as you guys, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, I've talked about the Claremont Institute a lot. And I talked about how it went from a pretty respectable, conservative organization, think tank, into kind of a paleo-conservative organization that kind of greenlit Trumpism. Michael Anton's The Flight 93 Election I think was the playbook for why conservatives needed to vote for Trump in 2016. I won't rehash all of it, but, you know, Michael Anton with the Claremont Institute, he writes Flight 93 election prior to 2016 and basically says we have to vote for Trump because the Democrats are existential to this country. And basically his point was, is we might as well take over the plane and crash it into, you know, the Pennsylvania uh, countryside, much like the Flight 93 plane happened you know, during the 9-11 attacks, because he said it was better to crash it, take over the plane from the terrorists and just crash it. And that I think kind of became the MAGA mantra over time was that the country is in an existential dread. The Democrats are bad. The country's bad. And so we need to just elect someone who can fight for us. And they saw Trump as their avatar for this. And the Claremont Institution, also John Eastman, 
one of my professors at, at Chapman, obviously involved in January 6th. And the escalation is, it. I think the Claremont Institution is a really interesting frog in boiling water type of situation where you just see how it intellectualized Trumpism before even Trump was president. And it kind of created the groundwork for this weird paleoconservative slash national conservative movement that we see now. And so she went to Claremont McKenna and talks about how, you know, some of her fellow, fellow classmates were able to, you know, get UN internships and go abroad for internships. And, and she came from more of a working class background. And so there was a bit of appeal that there were, there was, there was organizations like the Claremont Institute where I don't want to say it would totally groom young students, but she was brought into a circle where you're meeting people like Michael Anton and John Eastman and others like that. And you're like, oh my God, I don't even know if I agree with these people, but I'm in the room with them. I'm getting access to power. I'm meeting intellectual leaders on the conservative right. And she talks about how this automatically kind of leads to almost a natural loyalty to these people because you're in the room with them. They're telling you, you have a lot of potential and talent and before long, you're working with them and defending them and kind of getting groomed to be the next generation. And so I won't spoil all of it, but she also talks about how this leads to kind of the Turning Point USA movement, obviously Charlie Kirk, one of the founders of that, and how he generally put college Republicans, he flipped that whole movement on its head. And so like, you know, like a little side note is I was a college Republican back in my day and I don't know, listening to her book and then hearing her interviews, it kind of made me go, oh yeah, this is why I completely left the Republican Party during college and became a never-Trumper early on. It's because I, I kind of saw this, but I didn't really see it at the time, is it was like college Republicanism was changing. It wasn't the people reading William F. Buckley or Edmund Burke, any of these type of people anymore, you know, Hayek. It was the people that were into kind of this oh, Democrats are all bad. We just want to own the libs. It was the Ben Shapiro, you know, liberal tears type of movement. And of course, that's kind of funny until you realize it's a pretty vapid movement that doesn't want policy. It doesn't want actually to help the American people as much as it just sees the other side as a detriment and something that is a problem and existentially wrong for the country. And I'll never forget I think when this first really hit home to me was a couple years ago when I was I was reading I don't I don't subscribe to the Claremont Institute, but sometimes I'll look at articles they had and it was one right after January sixth and once Biden was president. I forget who wrote it, but the article to said something to the effect of No, we are not all Americans. There are the Biden supporting Americans and then there are the ones who want to stand up to it. And basically in a nutshell, Tina Wynn's book talks about how this became a thing, is that groups like the Claremont Institute, along with others, basically kind of fostered and created a new generation of not only paleo-conservative college students, but ones that didn't really see public policy or bipartisanship as a solution, but just standing up against the other side. And I, I think it's something really interesting. I'm not going to spoil much more of the book, but I guess this really put off a lot of I guess a lot of light bulbs in my head when I realized that that's why I left the Republican Party so long ago is because I was actually interested in the Edmund Burkean, Hayek 
type of even William Buckley early national review stuff. And this is not what they were feeding my generation. They were feeding us kind of this existentialism of owning the left and fighting the left. And there's not really much of an ideological background backbone, sorry, to this, but there's enough of an ideological unifier that it can be a pretty dangerous movement, even if it's vapid. So I recommend people do check that out. MAGA Diaries, Tina Wynn, connected with me more than I was hoping to. And it made me realize why I'm such a kind of center-left, never-Trumper now. It, it really does. And it sounds like she's kind of on the same same boat as me. So, yay. And I guess me is someone who is in the center, probably center-left, that does want to see bipartisanship and passing policy that helps our environment helps our inequality, helps us overseas create better peace, and just makes Americans and the world healthier and happier and safer. I, I just, I kind of worry about what this new movement brings because I have so many friends when I'll be talking to them either offline or online or we'll, we'll be getting a drink or whatever, going for a run. They're like, so Biden's old, Trump's old, maybe we need a new generation. And I've always told them, and I think the MAGA Diaries here backs up my point, is that I actually don't know if the younger generations would bring back that either. If you have like Turning Point USA kind of leading to this new generation that is fighting fighting each other for more social media influence, like honestly, Turning Point USA will probably be gone in a few years because now you can just go on TikTok and become a right-wing influencer, same as a left-wing influencer. And it's less about reading political philosophy, studying public policy, studying economics and law, and just trying to find a nuanced take where you actually want to just argue ideas. Much like John Stuart Mill originally talked about is knowing your weaknesses, not fighting your weaknesses and hearing the opposition. Like we're, we're past that point. And so I worry that when I see like Gen Zers on both sides I don't know if there's actually productive policy coming out of that. And I'm not talking about everyone. Believe me, I I know very smart people in my generation and and younger than me that definitely think this way, but they're not the voices being heard. So everyone's like, I mean, also, just by the way, like I, I look at younger progressives that are in Congress and younger conservatives that are in Congress, and I guess you could say Matt Gates is younger. You could say Lauren Boebert's a younger generation. Like these aren't these aren't productive people. You also have the Nick Fuentes types. So so I don't actually know if bringing in the younger people are actually the point because the younger people have kind of been fed a pretty divisive message for quite some time, and it seems like it's sticking. So yeah, I'm starting off on a real happy note, as you can hear. But I actually think the older people have more of an experience of pragmatism, and that's why I think it hurts me when I see so many Republicans that have spoken out against Trump just already endorsing him because they should see the writing on the wall. Anyways, let's move on. Let's talk about Iran and Pakistan. So we're not going to talk about the Houthis today, but it does seem like pretty much every time by the time I record maybe every second podcast, there's a new troubling event that takes place in the Middle East. And... (laughs) I want to start by talking about the events that happened in Pakistan, I guess, yesterday by the time you're hearing this. And it looks like Iran has conducted strikes inside of Pakistan across the border they share. I should probably note that this is probably one of those events that is not directly related to what is happening in Gaza or the Red Sea. Instead, it's probably one of these periphery events 
that we are experiencing at this volatile moment, which obviously could make things worse because of just, again, the volatile situation that we're seeing right now. But I don't know if it's directly related. So anyways, Pakistan and India share, I think it was like 596 miles of a border. So a little bit less than 600 miles of a border. And they've seen skirmishes occur because they have a lot of, basically Pakistan and Iran are in a bit of a security dilemma, a bit of a prisoner's dilemma. And it's actually kept them from doing anything violent or harsh, but there is a bit of a security dilemma there. And so we've seen this also happen on India and China's border as well, where skirmishes break out. This is nothing new to foreign policy, especially if you're like me and do subscribe somewhat to the realistic take of foreign policy. So anyways, the problem in this case is that the Iranian military, well, the the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, from everything I've read, directly targeted a Sunni militant group in Pakistan but the attacks didn't actually kill militants or any of the, I guess, terrorists would be a better word to use. And instead, they killed family members and two children. And whether the attack to take out terrorists is right or wrong, I, I'm never for killing innocent people, within an, especially within another country's borders, or just anyways, killing innocent people is not good. And Pakistan, of course, is furious, so it's understandable why. CNN notes here in quotes, Iran said it used precision missiles and drone strikes to destroy two strongholds of the Sunni militant group Jaish al-Alald, known in Iran as Jaish al-Dulum and, and in, the, in Pakistan's south, southwest um, province, Ko-el-Sabz. Sorry if I'm pronouncing those incorrectly. Those do not flow off my tongue. But anyways, that's according to Iran's state media slash news agency Tazneem. And obviously over the last few days, we've also seen Iran hit targets in Syria and Iraq. This is also as the US and the UK have heightened their attacks on the Houthis. Houthis are also trying kind of a social media campaign to say death to the West, but are also trying to appeal to protesters in the West that are protesting Israel. That's a chaotic situation, which we're not even really going to touch on today. But what I mean is a lot is going on. But I do think that this Iranian attack inside of Pakistan is not good, and it's pretty serious. Because the two countries, as I said earlier, are not best friends by any means. They kind of have a prisoner's dilemma going on. But I think kind of that prisoner's dilemma has kept them from doing anything crazy. And so it's actually created somewhat of stability, even though there are skirmishes along the border, which is about 600 miles, like I said. So I think, again... The IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, it's not good that they are continuously conducting these attacks on foreign soil. Obviously, it's not new. I think, again, this highlights basically this international conflict between Sunni terrorism and Shia terrorism and Sunni governments and Shia governments. Like you have Saudi Arabia, majority Sunni country, attacking the Houthis in Yemen, causing the civil war, where, by the way, The U.S. actually took the Houthis off of a terrorist list back a couple years ago, basically, so we could get aid to Yemen easier. And now just, it was yesterday, I believe, we put the Houthis back on as a registered terror group. So that's an example of that. Then you have like the Iranian government fighting Sunni terrorists like ISIS. 
So this to me is not about countries. It's about a larger geopolitical struggle between Sunnism and Shiism. And you have large actors that are kind of willing to supersede borders to, to conduct war on groups they deem militants or terrorists. And it's really complicated because there are good and bad actors on both sides. And it and I'm not trying to do a both sidesism here by any means, but it is so complicated where you have just so many different sects inside of both religions. And this is a, you know, a centuries, millennia, potentially old war. And so we are just seeing that now with also the background of October 7th. And so I guess what I mean here is that Iran hitting Pakistan, it's not just about this one militant group. This just shows to me how we're seeing this Sunni versus Shia terrorism and responses to it superseding international boundaries. And so, anyways, getting back to what happened, it's probably not going to surprise you guys. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that. To hear that Pakistan's foreign ministry said in quotes, that the attack killed two innocent children and warned Iran of serious consequences. Also, CNN writes in quotes here, the Pakistani government described the attack as an unprovoked violation of its airspace by Iran inside Pakistani authority. And again, I've also talked about this too many times on the podcast, but this is just another sign, I think, also getting outside of just the Sunni-Shia thing This is also just a a sign of the breakdown of kind of our international norms and just kind of the 21st century view of national sovereignty, even 20th century view of national sovereignty, that has mainly kept the world stable, especially in the post-World War II era. Of course, people will argue that, yeah, some parts were stable, but a lot of these areas have been seeing the same dynamics happen for quite some time, which is not lost on me at all, and I can definitely entertain that argument. But... Anyways, issues cross international lines, terror networks are multinational, and countries like Iran are now using their domestic forces, like the the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, right? So again, I am very against them doing this, but I mean, this is similar to what Mossad does. I forget the name off the top of my head, but this is like what India was carrying out when they wiped out that Sikh leader in Canada, in, in Vancouver. Like, it's, it's becoming more and more common for domestic agencies to start branching to do external actions. And I don't like that, but it's an interesting dynamic for the sake of this podcast. A troubling dynamic, again. And then this is also when you see Ecuador breaking down, and you also see Venezuela holding a faux referendum to try to annex parts of Guyana for oil. Like, to me, you can't just look at one issue and say, oh, this is what's happening. You have to look at the bigger picture and say, no, this is just a breakdown in how we view national and, and sovereign, sovereign rights. So anyways, while I was having my coffee this morning, not a good coffee. I think I might have added too many beans. It was a little bit darker than usual. I was going to do some weights this morning and ended up just having that coffee and showering and going. <laughs> you guys don't care about that, so I don't know why I'm saying that. But anyways... I watched the BBC, and there was an interview with Hina Rabbani Kar, and she is the former Pakistani foreign minister, biased, no doubt, but I think she brought up some interesting points, and it's always interesting to hear points from, from that part of the world and from someone who really has nuance on this, and she argued that it's, and she argued an interesting point that I had to think about for a minute. She was like, this is really strange for Iran to be engaging in these types of actions, especially with the spotlight on... Lebanon, Yemen, the Red Sea, Gaza, and Iran's 
web expanding. And sometimes Iran doesn't even want that web to expand. I talked about this last week in a podcast is that like Khamenei, I don't think he particularly wants this type of expansion. And so to see the spotlight on Iran more and more, it's kind of surprising that then Iran would do this in Pakistan. And that was kind of her point to this. And so basically, I think she brings up an interesting point about how there is no reason for Iran to have done this, except for domestic reasons, or for just some sort of internal problem. And also, we do have to remember that over the last year, we saw protesters being jailed, beaten, women dying, kind of a crackdown on women's rights. And I mean, this is totally a side note, diatribe, whatever you want to call it, that we have to remember in the 70s, I mean, say what you want about the Shah, I'm probably opening up a can of worms with this, but there was a time when like the Iranian younger generations were listening to metal and smoking weed. Like that was a thing, you know what I mean? And then to see just kind of what's happened, there is still a section of Iranian society that stands up to this. We have seen a crackdown, more human rights like violations as women's rights have been trampled on over the last year. So like, it's interesting to me that Iran is still trying to, for example, strike Pakistani targets while it hasn't been the best year or two internally for Iran. And I think that's what I think that's what Miss Carr was talking about here was that maybe Iran's striking out due to internal tensions to hope to consolidate power back home. And of course, I'll get criticism from some of my listeners if I don't mention as well that Pakistan's not exactly the gem beacon, whatever you want to say, of hope in the region. Over the last two years, we saw Imran Khan, leader of Pakistan, get ousted by the military. He's kind of become a cult-like figure. I think a, there's a lot of reports that some Western countries would like him back in power. Iran, I mean, not Iran. Pakistan is in a bit of an unstable situation itself. We have to remember that Pakistan's military is very influential in the politics there. Yes, they hold elections technically, but Pakistan's military kind of has a final say. That's why Imran Khan, former cricket superstar, kind of a weird Islamist leader, corrupt somewhat ally of the West is thrown out. Now he's talking about his worries of being assassinated, trying to lead his own versions of January 6th. Like, again, this is, this is a whole other conversation as well. I I know I've opened up so many cans of worms here. We're not going to be able to close all of them tonight, but I'm just saying this to, to mention that Pakistan also worst floods ever historic, historic floods, agricultural delays. I mean, Pakistan's not doing well either. And of course, that leaves a place like Pakistan rife for extremism. And so these are like Iran and Pakistan are not exactly great actors here. But I think the bigger ramifications to me are what does Pakistan do? Because what does matter to me in this whole case is that Pakistan is kind of a volatile country as well. And it has a right to respond technically because there was an attack on its soil. Now, I think Iran would argue that this is a multinational terror group that is operating inside of Pakistan, but it's also done attacks throughout the region. That is what the IRGC, I'm sure, will also say. And and then so my questions would be, is this an isolated strike? Is it the start of something bigger? Also, do Iran and Pakistan try to just quell this before it gets worse, which it does seem like they're doing it's just, again, I, I need to put up a whiteboard soon and start tracking all of these isolated but somewhat connected incidents because it's getting harder and harder to track. So 
Anyways, what I do know, I have all those questions. What I do know is that we need diplomacy right now. Diplomacy is key in just a myriad of different ways. And it looks like this strike, or it was two strikes. It looks like these two strikes are going to make diplomacy much more difficult between Iran and Pakistan. And the Associated Press, I think, sums up everything we need to know. It had an article out earlier today. It writes here in quotes, Tuesday's airstrikes in Pakistan imperiled diplomatic relations between the two neighbors, but both sides appeared weary of provoking the other, which is good. It later writes, Iran and nuclear-armed Pakistan have long regarded each other with suspicions. But then the article later talks about how Mumtaz Zahra Balak, the spokesperson for Pakistan's foreign ministry, did announce that they were recalling its ambassador to Iran over the strikes, and it looks like Iran's doing the same thing. So even if they're not provoking one another right now, suspicion is high and they're pulling out diplomats. So just me, as more of a foreign policy guy and not a military guy, those are always red flags to me right off the bat. So I'm, I'm never particularly a big fan of that. And now, I guess to be cup, let's say cup a quarter full, because I don't want to go fully half yet. But my instinct here is that both Iran and Pakistan don't want further escalation. And... These are big countries that have a lot of influence in their prospective regions and with prospective groups, and they don't want this to spiral out of control. And like I said, Khamenei and the IRG, well, not the IRGC, but the Khamenei and like the the Islamic Republic, it's it's of course expanded this web as I talked about last week, but I don't think I don't think it wants to actually expand or have all these like growing tinderboxes. And as Drew mentioned in in the interview I did with him where we talked about foreign policy, he argued it was more likely that Iran drops the Houthis before they actually back the Houthis. That's probably true. But again, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, it has a lot of independence in foreign countries. And this tells me that if Iranian leadership was smart, it would probably try to at least leash up, harness the independence that the IRGC sees. Because even if the Islamic Republic itself does not want escalation, when you have these domestic groups with a lot of independence working in sovereign countries that are not Iran, shit can happen. Shit can happen. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing here. And, and that's why the IRGC's rhetoric is what's expanded to groups like the Houthis and Hezbollah, just to name a few. And I think that's why this is volatile. So anyways, we'll have to keep watching this. That's going to do it for tonight. I just wanted to highlight this. I do apologize for ranting probably too much about the Claremont Institution at the beginning. But if you've been a longtime listener, you know that I've been kind of interested in the Claremont Institution and kind of the intellectual, or you could almost say like reactionary intellectualism that it started. So anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. I think you guys know the rest. I'm out of here. Adios. Adios.